Good morning. Thanks, CJ. My name is Matt Williams. I oversee our groups here at Life Community Church. And while we have our life groups and our men's groups and women's groups, I wanted to mention one of the groups that uh, kind of lays under the radar for certain reasons, and those are our recovery groups. And these recovery groups meet as men and also as women and also as co-ed. But what we want you to be very clear on is the fact that we're here to come alongside you, whether it's hurts that you're living with from your past or maybe in your current lifestyle that are, uh, in a sense, hindering your walk with Jesus. Uh, It might be some sort of addiction or hang-up that has just followed you through your life and you want to get help with that. Whatever it may be, we have these recovery groups for that reason, and there is no shame in reaching out. Fact is, we're sure not to uh, issue any kind of condemnation. We want to come alongside you and love you through it and help you walk closer with Jesus and with each other. I think one of the things that I love about our recovery groups is every one of our leaders have been there. They've gone through it. Christ has redeemed their life and put that addiction or that hardship behind them, and they're moving forward in strength and victory of Jesus, and they want to help you walk in that same victory. So for more information, as CJ said, all this is in your bulletin for your next step, and like I said, uh, we want to come alongside you in a helpful and loving way, so no condemnation, no shame on this more than anything else. It's the love of Jesus being extended to you. It's also my privilege and opportunity this morning to read our uh, passage out of the scripture this morning. We are working through the book of Luke. We're in Luke 13, if you want to turn there in your own Bible or uh, maybe your equipment that you have. Luke 13, we're reading 1 verses 1 through 9 this morning. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he, being Jesus, answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he, the vine dresser, answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it, put on some manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is God's word this morning. Praise be to God. As we jump back into Luke, took a break there for a minute. Uh, in the summer, we did a by faith series, and then we looked at our mission statement out of John 17. And it's wonderful to be back in Luke as we dive in to what the Spirit's teaching us and, and myself included. And we see three things right off the bat: test, trials, and death. 100% of us are going to face 100% of those three things. Just a matter of when, not if. The Bible is hard to understand. Maybe you've thought that, maybe you've felt that, 
I feel like it's out of touch maybe at times. And as I thought about it, when you sit with Scripture and we allow it as difficult as it is from time to time, and we try and apply it to our lives, it's passages like these that at first glance you're like, what is going on? But aren't we glad politics, as gross and disgusting as they are, we're not fearing uh, someone coming to kill us right now? Or are we? And then you see the, the tower falling, which if you're around in 2003, you know, in Paso, two people died because the tower fell. And interestingly enough, Jesus, as we see masterfully, works from a cultural event, political event, and brings himself front and center. Here we see Jesus being put on the spot, and he doesn't run away and say, oh, we don't talk about politics, I'm God, we, we church and state. He's like, okay, we'll talk about this. Let me direct you to what the big question and really important truth is for your soul. And that's the same thing here. We see often Jesus started his ministry with giant crowds in churches and synagogues where all the religious people would gather. And now he's, he's really growing them in a group. This vulnerable question is able to be asked in a group. So as we learn in rows, we grow in groups, as Matt was talking about. And we see that the layers get peeled back in them to discern more in a, about who Jesus is and why he came. And that takes a small group. And even down as we see sometimes three, two, or one with Jesus and John. First off, we see Jesus explains how not to respond when towers fall and suffering comes and tragedy is upon you. Second, we see how to respond when towers do fall and suffering is at your door and tragedy is all you see around you. And the first way to respond that Jesus says, don't do this, is the religious or moralistic view. When you look at suffering and trials and the towers are falling down, the religious moralistic way Jesus brings up, as we see in verse 2, he says, do you think the Galileans are worse sinners than the others because of what happened? Do you think that the Galileans who were slain when they were trying to worship and their blood was mixed with their sacrifice blood and it was complete abomination to God, like, do you think they're worse sinners to suffer in that way? In verse 4, he says, do you think they were more guilty than all the others? That's a religious, moralistic way of viewing when tragedy comes. The 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell. So, as you know, towers are great at providing resources, but when they fall, there's a ton of destruction. And people die, as you saw September 11th. I'll never forget where I was, and I know you probably won't either. In my ignorance, I thought it was a radio tower. I had no clue the devastation and the loss of life. I had no idea. And when you think about towers, it was a huge deal. It's like, wait, hold on. Tower killing 18 people. What's going on? And the religious view, the moralistic view goes like this. If you live a good life, you'll have a good life. If you obey God, he'll bless you, prosper you. He'll even answer your prayers. If things are, are going wrong in your life, though, it's because, well, maybe your prayers aren't being answered because bad things are happening to you, which is a result of your bad living. 
you know, you, you have some horrible things that you've walked into and, and you go back and go, well, I wasn't always the best Christian or I wasn't always the best husband or wife. I, now I'm being punished for some reason. There's just something wrong with you, maybe you're thinking. Or some friend comes to you and says, I bet there's unconfessed sin in your life. Have you confessed your sin? So if towers are falling on you, you're doing something wrong, is the religious moralistic view. And let's be honest, we've all been there, and maybe some of you are there today. When I was in high school and started surfing, I'd be out with my friends who were smoking, drinking, having sex before marriage, and they're getting the amazing waves. And we paddled out to where the waves are, and I'm sitting there, and all I'm getting are what I felt like were towers, just wave after wave pummeling me. And I'm like, Lord, just give me a wave, please, and don't let me get eaten by a shark. I'm trying to follow you, but, oh, did I lie last week? Or was that thing I did or didn't do? And, oh, maybe it's, oh, there's sin in my life. Okay, I don't get waves today. It's that moralistic, religious view. I'm not doing good, so I'm not going to get good. And we talk about that now. It's just like slogans and t-shirts, do good, be good, get good. It's this view. And so it's everywhere. So we say, or maybe you've heard it said, if my life isn't turning out well, I must have done something not good. Or if my life is turning out well, I must have done something right. If my children are turning out right, it's because I read all the good parenting books and now I'm a good parent. If your career has taken off, it's because you're hardworking, intelligent, and everyone else is lazy and they're just not smart. I have a lot of good relationships because I'm so attractive and easy to be around and I'm awesome, so why would I not have good relationships? Do you say things like that? If something good to me happens, then it must have been because somewhere along the line, I've done something good. What we really mean is there's no room for grace. We see grace is goodness out of the blue. Grace is goodness for doing nothing. Grace is goodness for actually doing evil. So getting good because you've done wrong is grace. Therefore, because the human heart has to, wants to, needs to take credit and pride for the good things that are now yours that you receive. It's all because of your doing. So as a result, your life, when it starts to go bad and fall apart, naturally it's, I've done good, so I got good, and now bad is happening and I'm getting bad, therefore I must have done bad. You say, I'm not living right, I'm being punished for something maybe. It's instinctive, it's out of your mouth and in your head before you know it. And so Jesus is saying there's two people to blame for your suffering that the world tends to view. And the first view, when we look at falling towers, whether towers fall on on you or someone else, is the religious, moralistic view. And you're asking who is to blame. And the answer you come up with is the people on who the tower has fallen. They must have done something wrong. They've sinned. And so now they're being punished. And the second view is the irreligious approach. When towers fall, instead of looking at whom the tower fell on, the approach is to blame the universe or God. So who's above the tower? Who could have caused this tower? Let's blame them. So the religious view, simply put, is looking at who's under the tower. The irreligious view is looking at who's above the tower. Who caused it? It's the universe. It's evil. It's out to get me. I don't believe in God, but I have to have someone to blame, so I'm going to allow God to exist only for this moment in my imagination for blame purposes only. Is 
the irreligious view says, hey, most people are good, most people work very hard, and most people, they deserve a good life. So many people, but they don't get a good life. Why? Well, because life's unfair. It's the universe is against me, and I'm going to create this God, and he's to blame. God is doing something wrong. Those are the two views. And Jesus introduces a new way that shows that both views are wrong. And Jesus introduces this way that if, if you're like me in my younger years, you didn't even think about the tower. You don't think about who's under it or who's above it. You're just like, I just want to get waves. I just want to get the paycheck or whatever. And you're not thinking about what bad happens. You're like, I wasn't even in Paso when the earthquake happened. Two people died. That's really sad. And then you just go on surfing, like, hope I don't get eaten by a shark. Like, that was my view. Like, I saw a shark notice, great white scene an hour ago, and I was put on my wetsuit ready to go out. Like, I didn't think about stuff. I was just like, hey, as long as there's waves. And then Jesus comes in and goes, hey, I want you to think about this. And this third view. And as, as if you're like me, you grew older and you realize, wait a minute, I actually have views. If I stop and think about it, I am more moralistic and religious in blaming either myself or other people under the tower. And, and I don't understand how people could blame the universe or a God who's above the tower. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 neither view is good for you. One of them will make you incredibly proud, looking at people under the tower, thinking they're not as good as you. And the other will make you unbelievably hopeless. Or you'll do what most people do, and you'll just bounce between the two whenever it's convenient. And Jesus is saying, do you think that they're worse sinners? Do you think they were worse people? And he responds, no, but repent. And at first glance, when he says, no, repent, you're like, wait, those seem to be kind of opposites. But in reality, they support each other. Let me, let me show you how they support each other. The first thing he says is so clear. Do you think when people suffer that they're being paid for their sins? And he says, no. Do you think when the tower falls on them that they're being paid and punished for their sin? And his response is, no. He's actually saying when these terrible things happen, do you think that is retribution, a consequence for their sin? And Jesus is saying, do you think that is God punishing them? And his response to that question is no, flat out no, which is good news so far, right? Because in John 9, the same thing happens. The disciples see a poor man who's been blind, and he says, hey, the disciples tell Jesus, this guy's blind. Is it his parents' sin or his sin? Who's Whose sin resulted in this punishment? And Jesus says, no, none of the above. And the book of Job also shows us the answer is no, because his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come to Job, and they're like, man, your life's horrible. Everything's gone except your wife, and your wife's telling you to curse God and die. No wonder Satan didn't touch her. It's a great proponent for Satan's view, not God's, right? And Job's like, thanks a lot. The last person here is just telling me to curse God and die. And his friends are saying, obviously, you're under a tower, you sinned, and now God's punishing you. Jesus comes right out, and he's saying very, very clearly, no. When you see people suffer, it's not a consequence for their sin. Then he turns around, though, and he says, but repent, lest you perish too. What? If he had only said no, everyone, including us, would say, oh, that's great. But wow, doesn't Jesus flip everything and turn it upside down? He is saying God is unfair then. You see, I'll put it clearly, this is where the gospel comes in. Jesus is saying, on one hand, don't you ever think those people are worse 
because they suffered. I want you to realize that every person on the face of the earth deserves to have a tower fall on them. Don't you dare fool yourself and feel proud as if you don't deserve to have a tower fall on you. If God gave you and he has not what you deserve, you would also have a tower fall on you. So our response might be, wow, that's a harsh thing to say, Jesus. I deserve to have a tower fall on me. Hang on, Jesus is showing us we do not want to believe the tension. We want to believe if God is a God of grace and love, therefore, we're not that bad. We're lovable. I know, finally someone recognizes my worth. But in contrast, if we're really, really sinful and flawed and broken, selfish and proud, there's no way God's going to love us. And that's the tension. And we just can't take them together. Either we clean ourselves up and make us lovable because we know God only loves those who are good or getting good. We can't accept the fact that we are exactly as Scripture says, doing evil and because of God's grace, he's good to us, he loves us. If I'm really loved, then I can't be that bad, we say, and we think. If I'm really that bad, then there's absolutely no way There's no way you're going to comfort me with being loved is the response in so many words. That's very concise. Every time I share the gospel, you get to that point where it's like, okay, I think I can believe, but I'm not good though. Like, how do I get good first? Because I know God only loves those who are at least getting better, if not there. I'm like, no, that's the the beauty of the gospel is you are that bad and God is that loving and, and he holds both in tension. And it's amazing when, Satan loses that battle and and the scales come off and the ears open up and they're hearing for the first time. They are that bad. They they deserve God's wrath and a tower on them, but God loves them and has saved them. And think about your life. Think about the lies you've told. You've never gotten the full consequences of those lies. Think of all the stupid choices you've made and you never got the full consequences of those. Think about all the times you betrayed a friend. Did you lose every single one of those friends? Every time you turn your back on God, The funny thing is, he wasn't running away. He was running towards you. He was running after you. There's nobody who's ever received 1% of the consequences of the stupid things and the wrong things and the proud and selfish things they've done. God is graciously, time after time, day after day, not giving us what we deserve. If you really saw the pride in your heart, if you really saw what was wrong with your heart, which is the cause of all the misery and problems in the human race, it's what's going on in your heart that you really dismiss or distract yourself from your need for a savior. It's that self-centeredness, the pride, the anger, the deception, and outright denial. And as you see your heart through scripture, as hard as it is sometimes, God's like, let's peel another layer off. Let me show you how gross you are. Let me show you how evil you are and deceptive and proud, and I'm gonna save you. What? Why would you do that to me? Everyone... What? On the one hand, God owes you nothing. And on the other hand, God is longing to be gracious and give you all of his inheritance, all of Christ's inheritance. And so clearly the gospel is this. You're much more broken and lost than your heart dares believe. You're way beyond repair than your heart would even fathom. But on the other hand, you are much more loved, much more cared for, and much more protected than your heart will believe either. 
And so as you hear the gospel, as you see Jesus going to the cross for you, rising from the grave, saying, look, believe in me and be saved, you're like, ah, there's no way. Like, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I don't need you. I'm my own savior. And then when you see how bad you are, you're like, there's no way that you can love me and care for me and protect me. I, I can't let my heart believe that because it'll get hurt again. And we, we see that at first glance, they seem to be at odds, but really they support each other, don't they? Only if you see the depth of what's wrong with you can you really appreciate the unbelievable patience, the unmatched patience and grace of God. And as we see his infinite grace and patience time and time, day after day, will you have the ability to be honest and say, yeah, I am broken. If you can't really look at all the stupidity of your life, if you cannot bear to be vulnerable and see what's wrong with you and with us, if we cannot see our flaws, take the criticism and, and be in pieces on the ground, we don't have the strength from knowing the grace of God. It's, it's the grace of God that helps me to not feel, oh, I must be okay. And to be like, it's, it's okay to not be okay. And, and I have areas in my life that God's pulled back and been like, cool, you're a pastor now. Let's work on your character in these areas that you still are struggling in. It's like, ah, oh, like Paul, I don't do what I know I should do, and I do the thing I'm not supposed to, and I don't want to do it. He's like, yeah, that's these two areas. Let's work on it. And in those areas in your life, are you, are you broken? Are you humbled? Are you saying, wow, God, in spite of me, you're still using me, and you're giving me grace and patience to grow me in these areas? Unless you see both of those, you're going to go back and forth between being the Pharisee who's cynical and proud and the skeptic, and you're not going to be able to handle suffering and troubles in your life. It's all about how you handle sufferings. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have sufferings. They hated me. They hate you. They're going to kill you because they killed me. How are we going to stay grounded? How are you going to struggle? How are you going to suffer? And James says, hey, when you suffer, count it joy. Be so stoked you're going to suffer. It's going to be great. And that's the church. That's the gospel. It's saying, look, you're going to handle sufferings and troubles, and we're talking about murder in church. We're talking about towers falling. And he's saying, look, when you understand my grace, then you're going to understand the gospel in a deep, deep way, and you're going to respond to people in a way they've not seen or experienced because they haven't seen my love flowing through you to them. He says, don't get mad at the people under the tower. Don't judge them as if they're being paid back for their sin. Don't get mad at the God above the tower. Get mad at the evil and sin that's in the world that's keeping God's people from him. What's intriguing here is he's not talking to people who the tower has fallen on. There's a lot of places in scripture as we see in the Psalms and as you keep coming to church and even Bible studies and discipleship, there's many verses that encourage those. If you're here and the tower's on you right now, you're like, oh, I'm, de I'm destroyed, I'm crushed. The scripture says, but you're not abandoned. Here, Jesus is giving counsel, not to those who the tower's fallen on, but to those who don't have a tower on them. He's giving counsel to people whose lives are right now in a trouble-free season. He's talking to people who don't have a tower on them. They're the people he's addressing and saying, when you go into this period, which is basically your life as a ship in the harbor, calm seas, which every time, there, more often than not, a surfing accident incident happens in one to two feet of waves. It's never in 20-foot swells where there's 
instant inflatable life jackets and jet skis ready to save them and in these giant 100-foot waves. Like, everyone's, like, on edge. Safety precautions are taken. Helicopters are hovering. Jet skis are running. It's the one- to two-foot waves. You're playing in the water. All of a sudden, the board gets smacked up by this wave and knocks you out, and you drown. And it's like, oh, it was all fun and games. So you're just lowered your awareness and alertness to danger. And he's saying, you're in a season where you're, like, in the harbor, but just because you're, you're in the harbor, you still have to take, care and caution that you would if you were sailing. You're still doing all the protocols, all the checks. You're still disciplined. You're still in awe that this boat's even floating, that somehow God's providing. Like a boat in the harbor where you get lazy and all of a sudden you don't check the plug and the boat sinks. It's like, how'd your boat sink in the harbor? Well, I was kind of distracted by other things. I didn't check the plug. That would never happen if you're sailing because you're going through your checklist and you're making sure all your bearings are right and everything's set up on the boat, right? And he's saying, look, when you're going through this calm period, Jesus tells us after he warns us, when you go through a period of life in which your life is going so smoothly, you're in the most dangerous territory spiritually. That's the first thing I want you to see. The first bit of advice is the caution. And then he says, you're going to perish. Watch out, look out. He says there's no greater spiritual crisis than to have no crisis in your life. There's no greater spiritual trial than to have no trials. There's no more spiritual dangerous place than to have that trouble-free stretch where you see no towers falling. There are plenty of Bible passages that talk about our faith being tested. What Jesus is trying to show us right here is there's no greater test, no greater assault on you spiritually He's saying, beware. And the second thing is he's telling us what to do during these dangerous times of trouble-free living. These dangerous times of safety, security, and relative comfort in our lives, what does he say to these people? He says, repent. The essence of sin is not breaking the rules. The essence of sin is to substitute yourself for God. It's saying, thinking, and doing things against God, which often... Put yourself or something else in the place that only God should be in your life. The essence of sin is not looking to him for salvation, but doing it yourself. Looking around when I was in high school, seeing kids my age, sleeping, doing drugs, doing whatever, I was like, man, their parents must have totally like just not parented them. Like, they're losers. My parents were awesome and maybe it was because I was homeschooled and then I entered public school and halfway through eighth grade is a perfect Blend, blend, and then I got older and I met those parents and saw what they did and was like, wow, maybe, maybe your parents were doing some things my parents weren't doing. Like, how did God not help and intervene? And it was a reminder of it's not what my parents did or didn't do. It was the grace of God. And it wasn't that their parents weren't doing enough. Their parents had to do way more because their kid was rebellious. And one of my friends was like literally fishing. The parents told me, yeah, we had to take him fishing every Friday at two when school got out to Monday morning. We'd fish all weekend long because if he wasn't on a boat in the ocean or the lake, he was doing something crazy he shouldn't do. I was like, yeah, that's a lot more work than my parents had to do for me. Religious repentance, it's abnormal. It's only when you blow it. And it's easy to look at people under the tower and go, hey, man, there must have been horrible parents and those are horrible people. I'm so much better than them. Religious repentance is abnormal. Hey, I caught you in a lie. Okay, I repent. 
right? Religious repentance says, oh my goodness, the wrath of God, the tower's falling on me, I repent. Oh, phew, thank you, hold up the tower, I'm out, I'm still alive. That's not repentance. Gospel repentance happens all the time. You respond to failure with repentance, but do you respond to success with repentance? So many people get excited about October to go to strangers' homes and get candy. I get excited about October because it's a reminder of we're here opening God's word, reading it for ourselves, because a lot of dudes died. Like the blood of martyrs watered the gospel and also printed the Bible we hold in our hands, and many of you forgot at home for various reasons. Like that was blood bought and paid for, and it, and it, was, it wasn't because a guy was like, I don't know about like some stuff. He was reading the Bible, and he realized, if I go to the priest to, to repent, what if I don't think something's a sin? Which my wife and I obviously have different views of sins or things that are wrong. Namely, in a car with a horn. Like, we just disagree on that. And so if, if there's a priest and I had to go, she's like, hey, you better tell the priest. I'm not telling the priest about the horn. No, we're not talking about that. It's not. And Martin Luther was like, shoot, what if the horn really is a sin? What if I shouldn't have done that? And I didn't confess and I die. I didn't repent. I'd go to hell. Martin Luther wrote 95 theses. He nailed them to Wittenberg door and he said this, all of life is repentance when you understand the gospel. The religious understanding of repentance is saying, I'm atoning for my sin, I stop, I repent, hold the wrath of God back, I atone for my sin with that repentance. I don't wanna be punished for my sin, so I repent. I'm found out, I gotta cry, I'm gonna put up a show, let's just, let's just brush it aside, I, I atone for it. I'm trying to sort of hurt myself until I feel like God will forgive me, is that religious repentance. Gospel repentance, Contrary, he says, I am not living as if it has been paid. I'm trying to earn my worth. My significance and salvation is solely based on my performance and the good things I have. And I'm looking at them as proofs that I'm okay. But I'm not living God's love filling me and flowing through me so I'm living anxious and I'm living proud and I'm going to perish unless I make Jesus my true Savior. And you're repenting saying, I'm in sin. I'm looking to other things to take the place to be God. Even my work and performance, I'm trusting that will show that I'm doing good and it's not going to be enough. I need to trust only in Jesus. So the gospel repentance produces this posture and produces this fruit in our lives. So maybe some of you are like, man, when's he going to get to the fig trees? Is he cutting it? Like we read about the fig tree. When's it going to make this appearance in the sermon? Here's the dramatic entrance of the fig tree. So many times with parables, people are like, oh, who's the parable about? And, is, and did Jesus teach this to make a point? Or did he teach it to make a difference? So often we look for the point that he's making. And who's who in the parable? Is God the owner? Is Jesus the vine dresser? And Jesus told this to make a difference in our lives to help us work through from who sinned and why the tower fall to, oh, we deserve the tower. And he's saying, you need to repent no matter what. What does the fig tree represent? It's us. What are the figs God is looking for? Repentance. What is fruit? Fruit is a sweet thing. Repentance is a sweet thing. And I don't know about you guys, but I cannot open up a thing of 
strawberries, blueberries, any kind of fruit, berry, and it, without just being like, this seems like a great idea just to kind of dump it all in my mouth and eat it all. Like, why would I not, why would I not eat all of this right now? This is so good. It's sweet. It's savory. It's good. It's the weirdest thing. You know, the kids are like, I don't like grapes. I'm like, dude, you need to repent. That's a sin problem. Like, how do you not like fruit? Like, figs are, and I didn't have figs until I was older. I'm like, how did my parents not let me have figs? These are such good fruit. Like, of course the guy's all mad as fig tree's not giving him figs. Like, let's, we have a serious problem. Repentance means that when things are doing very well, I'm humbled because I know it's all grace. And when things are going terribly, I'm affirmed because I know God is not pushing, punishing me for my sin. We see repentance creates joy in me and repentance creates poise and in, in that stability to endure and have joy in suffering through trials and when the towers fall. Well, you say, how can, how can it do that? I don't understand. How can you know all this? Here's the reason we know this to be true. It's because who is talking to us? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the absolute proof that the religious understanding of falling towers is wrong because he was the best man who ever lived. He lived a sinless and perfect life. He was the one who deserved, because of his wonderful life he lived, as a result, to not endure a tower, but instead he endured the most pain and suffering and isolation anyone ever has. The reason, you know this is true, Jesus says if you repent, towers won't destroy you when they fall on you. It's because the ultimate tower has fallen on me, Jesus says. The ultimate tower has fallen on him. The reason... The best person had the worst life and the ultimate tower of eternal justice and God's wrath crashed on him is because we deserve that. We deserve that wrath of God. We deserve that justice to be on us. But it fell on him. It fell on Jesus. If you want to handle the iniquities and injustice in this life, you have to see that the greatest injustice of all was done to Jesus. When the towers are not falling on me and my life is going very well, I have to repent by saying, it's nothing but grace. I was doing evil towards God and he did the most loving and gracious and good thing towards me. How is that exchangeable? And the gospel holds both intention. It's nothing but grace. The reason God can be good to me and not give me what I deserve is that Jesus Christ got what he did not deserve. The very reason God is never going to give me and you what we deserve, but something better, is that God did not give Jesus what he deserved, but something far worse. He got the ultimate tower, God's wrath, and it fell on him. And the sweetness of repentance, the figs that can grow in your life, if you see this, but without repentance, see that last verse, verse 9, if it should bear fruit next year well and good but if not you can cut it down everything spiritually is healable except an unwillingness to repent anything can be repaired spiritually relationally between you and God if you admit that something's broken and it needs to be repaired you see that any wrong can be righted between you and God but not if you don't admit that you sinned and you've replaced God with your job, a spouse, a kid, tickets to the Super Bowl, whatever you replace God for, 
if you say, hey, there's a problem, I need God to fix it. There's no sin so small that it does not bring damnation. The Westminster Confession says, there's no sin so small that doesn't cause us to fall from God's glory and be sent away from him forever. And there's no sin so great that it can bring that it can bring damnation on anyone who truly repents. So it doesn't matter how much sin you have in your life. If you repent, God will forgive you and remove that sin, that pain, that shame, and give you a new life. And it's crazy because it's so easy to say, I believe and receive that new life and exchange your old life with Christ's new life because the tower fell on him. And it doesn't have to fall on us. And that's why he says, look, when the tower falls, it's not over if you believe in me. But if you don't believe, then you're gonna perish. You're gonna go to hell forever. But you need to repent now while there's time. And it's crazy because the rest of Luke is basically going, hey, Theophilus, you're a new believer. Jesus is coming back for you. And you, either you, you repent and believe and, and are raptured or you repent, believe and die and then you're with Jesus. Either way, you need to repent and believe now so you can be with Jesus forever and start living eternally now. Start loving people like Jesus now. And that's why Jesus is saying, repent now so you can start building God's kingdom now. Because there's not, a, not that much time left to get as much work done as we should. And the harvest is plentiful and workers are few. So we see that we need to let our life be like that fig tree, just shooting figs off everywhere. So the world's like, wow, that's amazing fruit. This is so good. And some of you are like, yeah, I need to do this ministry or do that. You need to repent today. Your life is too easy. It's too good. And you think it's a, because you did something good. That's not true. It's God's grace shown to you. So let your life be filled with the sweetness of real repentance, gospel repentance, where God gives you goodness for the evil you've done because you believed in his son, especially when towers are not falling on you. Let's pray together. God, as we know, we do evil. We, we, we're sinners and you came to save us. We pray for those in here who are needing to trust in you, who are learning more about your love and are saying, I'm not good enough yet. I need to still get better that today would be the day they'd realize, they'd see. Because of your wrath, the greatest tower fell on Jesus to take the punishment. There's no more work to be done. It's finished. You paid the price for them. They would believe repent for the wrong they've done and receive the new life in Christ. Now that they would say, I'm a sinner in need of a savior and that, that Lord, they would let us know and we could join you and the joy you have seeing another son or daughter come to you, come home. We pray for the believers here that have had it so easy for so long that are learning, wow, I need in this season to repent because it's all good and it's all from you and nothing I've done that we would have that fruit of repentance flowing out of us, constantly being humbled, not proud and judging, as we see people who are under a tower and there's no tower falling on us. And we would help people who are looking at the universe or this God blaming them for the towers falling around, that we would be able to help them see, no, God is good and loving. 
And, and he's actually made a way for the tower not to, to completely destroy you, but you need to repent now. The tower is not God's wrath, but God's wrath fell on Jesus. And God's wrath is going to fall on you one day unless you repent and believe today. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would guide us to be that men and women of repentance. In Jesus' name. If we give you time now to reflect on let the Holy Spirit speak to you. God's wrath was poured out on his son, and now you, as believers, are free to be full of his love and let his love flow through you, through your words, thoughts, and actions to those around you. So we got communion elements. We'll pass them out if you didn't get one. Raise your hand, and then I'll come up in a minute and close this down.